Margie told me that the last time I did this, I didn't speak loud enough. So if, if you can't hear me, give me a signal and I'll try to move it up a little bit. Um, the title of today's sermon is called Assurance of Salvation. On oh, a, a strange thing before I get started here. I, I was timing Zach last Sunday to see about how long his sermon lasted. And it was about 30 minutes. I thought, well, he can't beat me. So I'm thinking this might run about 30 minutes. So try not to doze off. And, um, you know, another strange thing in relation to that. For some reason, recently, I was reading Matthew chapters 3, 4, and 5, the Lord's Prayer. You know, Jesus, and it took me 16 minutes to read it. Jesus, the Lord's Prayer took 16 minutes, and yet it takes us 30 minutes to get through a sermon. Not the Lord's Prayer, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Sorry, I said that wrong. Yeah. So isn't that something? He, he said all that in 16 minutes, and I'm going to run on for probably 30. So <laughs> be patient. <laughs> Assurance of salvation. Hebrews 11.1 Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. How many of you were given that calendar earlier this year by Zach, of the little animated characters? Did any of you remember that? One of the first things he did back in January, I suppose, handed out little calendars with quotes on it and uh, kind of cartoonish pictures of Various great pastors from the past. And um, there was one I did not recognize at all. His name was Stephen Charnock. And the quote that they attributed to him on the front of this calendar is, Assurance is a fruit that grows out of the root of faith. Well, now, I think what we need to remember is that fruit must grow and mature. That statement is at the core of what I want to say today. How many of us here today have an absolute, ironclad, mature faith that not only is there an immaterial being, a God, who created us and sustains us and rules over every aspect of this world, but that he also loves his creation and in particular those persons he chose in Jesus before the foundation of the world, as it says in Ephesians 1.3. And by love, do I mean an absolute and final and perfect love? Yes, I do. If we were to answer this question of assurance affirmatively, we first need to have, obviously, faith. Perhaps, for example, like the Apostle Paul, who spent, it seems, virtually every waking moment serving God, probably even when he was making tents. We might argue that it was easier for Paul because, after all, he had undeniable supernatural communication with God. Think, for example, of his Damascus Road experience. Things that we as modern reformed people might say simply don't take place today. But Paul was able to say in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
What might such assurance look like today? It can, I'm sure, come in different forms. I'll tell you a funny story I just read that I was reminded of by this statement. We get World Magazine, which is a Christian news magazine, and it told this little anecdote. A woman that wrote in to reply to one of the articles that was in the magazine, and she was uh, made this observation based upon something she'd read. She said she had a kind of a hobby. This sounds a little bit weird, but she liked to wander through graveyards and read the headstones. I don't know if you've ever done that. And some people have a little epitaph on it, and, and it's interesting. And they, of course, have their name, and then they have the date of birth and the date of death. She noticed on this one, there was a slash, and then in quotes it said, buried alive. And isn't it interesting that, that whoever was buried there wanted to leave a message, didn't they? Think about it. What was the message there? That person was buried alive. Anyway, she had, he had already departed and was still alive and buried, but in a different pl- he was in a different place now. So another example concerning assurance of salvation, but a completely different scenario. I recall seeing an account of a captive missionary in some country, a pagan society, I think it was in southeastern Asia, who was given the choice of renouncing Christ as his Savior or being executed. What choice would you or I make based on our degree of faith? This subject takes me back to a book by J.I. Packer, which I read years ago. It was all about the Puritans. And in it, Packer stated that very few of the Puritans claimed to have assurance of their salvation. Now, given their reputation for piety, this was a surprise to me. If the Puritans, by and large, didn't have assurance of salvation, how can we? We're modern-day believers, and our piety doesn't seem to equal theirs, to be assured. Before getting to the heart of this message, I want to take a brief detour to a note of historical interest with a question. At least I find it interesting. Some of you probably know the answer. What was the difference between the Puritans and the Pilgrims? The difference was not one of doctrinal beliefs. They agreed on the basics of the Christian faith. They differed during a time period in England and their relationship with their relationship with the Church of England, which was the state church. Those who would become what we call pilgrims were so dissatisfied with the Church of England and the king as the head of the church that they were willing to separate from the church. Many went to Holland for religious freedom, but they became disenchanted there because their children were losing their English heritage. And for that reason, they sailed to America on ships like the Mayflower in 1619 to start fresh and to be independent of that church, but maintain their Englishness. Now, the Puritans were those who at first were willing to stay in England and hoped to correct and influence the official Church of England. 
in time, approximately 1630, and on many, many, and on many of them migrated to the New World, where they would worship as they thought best, but still not be officially separated from the English Church. Well, some years went by, and then the man from the Encyclopedia Britannica, not Google, but the Encyclopedia Britannica, stated was the greatest intellectual ever produced in America was born. Perhaps somewhat ironically, that was the same year, 1703, that John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, was born. The man I refer to was Jonathan Edwards, who went on to be known as the last of the great Puritans. He was, of course, the author of the famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He was, I am certain, assured of his salvation. And he tried mightily to teach and influence his fellow Puritans to have assurance of their salvation. So what are the defining characteristics and terms associated with a Christian's growth to maturity and assurance? I would like to suggest several words. Number one might be data or information. Number two could be knowledge. Then perhaps belief. And going on further, wisdom. And then, of course, faith. Which is comprised of all of those earlier terms. All lead, hopefully, to assurance. It seems to me that there is a spectrum, a blending from one to another, a sequence to be seen in Scripture regarding these things. It may not be hard and fast, but it seems to be a common process. I would assume that all of us here today are aware of and hopefully hopefully have experienced what is described in one of our reformed in our in our reformed teaching our most revered, revered verses Ephesians 2:8 for by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves it is a gift of God This verse by itself doesn't give us any information about the degree of faith, if there are degrees of faith, and I believe there are, about the degree of faith needed to be saved or to have assurance. But it does give us a starting point, namely, that it is a gift. What is the form of that gift? Or what might it look like? At this point, I want to digress and tell you about a personal experience I had at about age 19, that was three or four years ago, which I believe was a rudimentary expression of that gift. If memory is correct, I may have told you this story in a sermon that I gave several years ago, so I'm sure you would remember it. Well, late one lovely summer evening, at our place on the Crystal River. I was alone outside enjoying the silence, the quiet, the stars, and that feeling of the immensity of the universe and our small presence in it. But then I had a depressing thought, something like, this is really nice, but is this all there is? There must be something more than this. 
And I believe that subtle question nagged at me intermittently for years. I was not aware at the time that I was experiencing God's gift from Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night knowledge. So I asked earlier, what is the form of that gift which leads to faith? In my case, in retrospect, I now believe that it was the Spirit of God nudging me that evening, preparing my heart for events that would not happen for another ten years. That's when I met Margie. We met at a mutual friend's home. And Margie's influence on me to become a Christian began. We married, started going to church, and the rest is history, as God has slowly revealed himself to me the ensuing 44 years. 44 years today. April 22nd. May 22nd. Sorry, Margie. <laughs> Yet during those years, I have found myself sometimes wondering even questioning the very reality of this magnificent creator and sustainer. I think the, te- the world tends to do this to a person. There are common questions that perhaps we all have, such as, how can a loving God not only allow, but even ordain the suffering and misery that occurs throughout the world? To answer that question, I find myself going back to the Garden of Eden. At that point, humanity had every reason and the ability not to disobey God. But they failed, and we, as the Bible says, inherited their sinful nature. A tough pill to swallow. But even knowing this, it seems that Satan, working hand in hand with our fallen nature, had come up with a more modern alternative plan to disrupt our faith in the Genesis account of creation. Now, I got a degree in biology and minored in earth science at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. And I taught those subjects for a couple of years before moving back to this area. There I was at age 23, teaching and parroting back the tenets of evolution. I used to debate that theory with Mr. Seymour, a man of probably 60 years at the time, a Lutheran, to whom I should have paid more attention. Some of you will remember a television miniseries from some years back called simply The Universe. Anybody happen to recall that? It was produced by astronomer Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan. Sagan was an atheist who summarized the miniseries final episode with this quote, The universe is the only thing that exists or existed or will ever exist. Unquote. I suppose he truly believed this, but can't help but wonder if he ever had doubts about that. Perhaps he was doing what Romans 1.18 says. He was suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. I wonder how Professor Sagan would respond to a line found in the great Russian writer Dostoevsky's book, The Brothers Karamazov. 
in which the brother who is a priest uttered a very clarifying truth. Quote, if there is no God, all things are permissible. In other words, if there is no God, there's no moral right or wrong, but only what each person wants it to be. Now, to be a scientist means to search for verifiable, repeatable, measurable, objective truth. In order to do so, one must gather data or information. I can't help but wonder what a phenomenon we have today is aptly named artificial intelligence. Do these machines actually have intelligence or are they merely cold-blooded robots that make decisions based on algorithms or data pumped into them? Today we read of a future when individuals will be able to quote-unquote live on forever. Because all of our brain activity can be deposited into a computer. Does data really constitute intelligence? Or more to the point, can a soul be deposited into a computer? Now in today's world, we are more and more influenced by thinking similarly to this artificial intelligence description. I have read of an account by a professor, Steven Weinberg, a scientist who believes only in the reality of empirical, testable, repeatable scientific facts. He wrote, quote, All religious belief weakens more and more, excuse me, as religious belief weakens, more and more of us know that after death there is nothing. He goes on to say, I can imagine how disturbed they, that is, religious conservatives, will feel in the future when at last scientists learn how to understand human behavior in terms of the chemistry and physics of the brain, and nothing is left that needs to explain by our having an immortal soul. Unquote. Do you see the irony and the error in his statement? Here's, here's a statement to analyze. Think closely on this. He, the scientist, doesn't see the impossibility of finding a material proof of the non-existence of something immaterial. Analyze that statement. If something is immaterial, how could you find a material proof that it doesn't exist? <laughs> well, now it's time to return to the question I referenced earlier which arose from Ephesians 2.8, that faith is the gift of God. It seems, however, that this verse does not answer the question about degrees of faith. You probably are familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, verse 14, in which Paul states, Now abide these three, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Here's a rhetorical question. At Christ's coming, will faith and hope need to continue? The words faith and hope are inherently tied to the word abide. But the word love is not tied to the word abide. Abide certainly has the sense of belief as used here. 
but it is a sense of difficult belief, of waiting, of patience, of endurance, of hanging on. Think of the incident in Mark 9.24, in which a young man is possessed by a demonic spirit. When Jesus' disciples could not cast it out, Jesus referred to them as what? Faithless. The young man's father pleads for Jesus to help his son. And Jesus replied, if you can believe, all things are possible for him who believes. And what was the father's reply? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Was this a partial or weak or immature or incomplete belief? Here's a second example. Think of the panic among Jesus' followers when a storm came upon them as they crossed the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus' reaction to them was, Oh, you of little faith. But by contrast, think of the Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8, who had a servant lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Jesus said, I will come and heal him. Well, to make a longer story short, the centurion had some faith that he knew Jesus could heal his servant from a distance, and he didn't need to come to his house. Quote, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Unquote. So here was a Gentile, a centurion, with more faith than the Israelites. So yes, there are gradations of faith. Baby step one might be the aforementioned heavens declaring the glory of God. Or in a similar vein, in Romans 1.20, says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And who are they? They are those who suppress the truth, as mentioned earlier. The next step in achieving faith, surely, is, in layman's terms, that of getting information or data. Or to quote Romans 10.17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's the data, the information that we get. The The word of God provides us with information or knowledge. Many people have heard the gospel. They've gained information. But many never go beyond that point. This may be equivalent to a child being told that a stove is hot. He has knowledge. But until he touches the stove, he may be without understanding. Proverbs chapter 4 tells us to get knowledge. And with your getting, get understanding. Can you see the sequence we're going through here? Proverbs 16.22 states, Understanding is a wellspring of life to him who has it, but the correction of fools is folly. Who are the fools? Those who hear but never progress from that point. To me, it's very interesting 
that the Pharisees who were told about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, number one, had information. Number two, they knew something, namely that Lazarus had been dead but now was alive. But did they get understanding about the significance of this? Apparently not. They were unable, and I stress the word unable, to make the connection concerning Jesus' power over death. Understanding is a good thing and seems to be the catalyst which allows a person to truly know something. Not just the fact, but to place that knowledge into a context that allows you to connect the dots, so to speak, of your profession of faith. Is it a part of a sequence leading to assurance? If so, it seems reasonable to, be, to believe that this might be a very good time to step up as, and, as they say, take it to the next level by adding meditation to your spiritual menu. In other words, don't merely read God's word and rarely think of it again, but grind on it. Worry as a dog worries a bone over and under from many angles. Follow that wise maxim of letting scripture interpret scripture. Hebrews 6.11 says, quote, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence of hope until the end. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Assurance of hope. In other words, hope is completed in assurance. Listen to this prayer by the Apostle Paul from Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. Quote, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. At least five words there, key words, you know, each a little different in, in power, you might say. About a month ago, and I don't think Zach will even remember this, about a month ago, our pastor Zach in Sunday school mentioned that in order to see the absolute consistency of the Bible from the Old Testament through the New Testament and to grasp its meaning for us as New Testament people, we should read and depend upon 2 Peter 1, 19-21. You remember that, Zach? Okay. I read those verses and have to say that I am very grateful for such a thing as a study Bible with footnotes and references and for the people who produce such things. Without them, I might not have seen the significance of the Old Testament events they refer a reader to and the relationship to this second Peter verse, which I will quote shortly. The footnote in Second Peter refers the reader back to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah in chapters 40 to 53 and their footnotes. Those footnotes explain how Isaiah was prophesying to Israel the bad news of their future exile in Babylon, but also the good news of their future deliverance by Cyrus from Babylon. 
All of this took place 150 years before they happened. They go on to describe the coming of the suffering Christ over 700 years in the future to save them from their sins after their return to their land. And ultimately, they describe Israel's final salvation on the last day. Now, who is this Israel, this Jerusalem that will be saved? It is not just the Jewish population or the physical Jerusalem. It is none other than God's elect from all nations and ages that will be saved. The point of Second Peter confirms and clarifies who they are. The context here in Second Peter is Peter describing when Jesus was tra- is being described when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. This is the context of when he's talking about this. And he was seen by Peter and James and John. Peter here interprets the significance of that event for us by stating in verse 19, quote, and so here in the transfiguration, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you will do well to heed as a light that shines in the darkness until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the events of 700 or 800 years before Peter were cryptic prophecies of the salvation of God's true Israel, whether Jew or Gentile. And Jesus' transfiguration was a confirmation through Peter's experience that Christ is coming back and even included a brief glimpse of the glory which that entails. So now we can see that those centuries of God dealing with the nation of Israel were all in preparation for and predictive of the final salvation of his elect. This begs the question, and I ask you, can we trust the Bible? Well, can we have proof of assurance? Could any 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years, going from Moses to Malachi and beyond, could they have produced a novel of war and hatred and intrigue and deception and suffering, but at the same time, with honor and love and compassion and steadfastness and hope and glory, all with no flaws, no contradictions. I say not even Agatha Christie could produce such a book if she'd lived 1,500 years. In layman's terms, is there any doubt in your heart about your assurance of salvation? Go to the Bible and scour it. Double-check it. Pray about it, and you will find no inconsistencies in the Bible. Its claim for itself in Hebrews 4.12 is true. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intent of the heart. With its very content, And with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, it can eliminate 
any doubts you may have about the big picture of the unknown God whom Paul proclaimed to the Greek philosophers in Acts chapter 17. Two verses to remember concerning your salvation. Number one, I repeat, it's Paul speaking again. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Number two, Hebrews 12, 2. Jesus died for the joy set before him. Surely we should look forward to that joy with him. Amen.